good to be with you all this morning. It really is just a joy to just, just yeah, be together. Uh, what a rich time of worship. Jason, thank you for leading us. And yeah, that was, that was really wonderful. And go ahead and turn in your Bible to the Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be finishing chapter 13 and beginning chapter 14 this morning. But in case you don't know me, I know most of you obviously, but there's probably some folks at home. Or there might be a few folks who haven't met. My name is Adam. I am one of the pastors here with Mercy Hill. And it really is just a joy and privilege to be with you all this morning. Again, we're going to be starting at Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 this morning. But I don't know if you, if, if there's any stories of rejection that you sort of like, it might sound like a weird way to say it, but there, there's sort of stories of rejection that sort of become redemptive that we kind of like hearing, right? So probably most of us have experienced stories of rejection in our life or times where we've been rejected for something. And we, we like them when they, when they sort of turn out redemptively, right? So there's a, there's a man named Jack Ma. Jack Ma, many of you probably would have heard of his name before, but he, he was a guy who was just used to a life of rejection. He wanted to go to a certain college, and so he applied for this college ten times. And, you know, he would, he would, and at ten times he'd get rejected. But each time he would you know, try to you know, just tweak what they're looking for and write it a certain way. And so he applied to the same college ten times. Ten times he gets rejected. So he decided to try out for the police force. Five applicants, including himself, tried, you know, applied for the police force. Four of them got hired, and you can guess which one didn't get hired. And so he, he applied for 30 jobs in his hometown. So he's just looking for any work he could get. 30 applications go in. He gets zero. He gets zero jobs coming from these applications. And probably the low point for him professionally was a Kentucky Fried Chicken opened, and 23 applicants applied for a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken. 22 of them got hired, and you can guess which one didn't get hired, and so he decided to start his own business, and that business failed, with sort of that premise was rejected by the people in the town, and so he started another business and another business. Well, finally, he starts a business, and one of it takes off, and today Jack Ma is the richest man in China. He's worth over $60 billion, so what happened is one of his ideas just sort of took off, but he would credit sort of this life of rejection to sort of giving him sort of the, the tools he needed, sort of giving him the perseverance and sort of use, forcing him to be creative in what he wanted. He was talking about somebody would have hired him, he just would have worked in an office and never would have sort of dug into the, the bag of tricks that he needed to start and run a successful business, but he gave him the perseverance, he gave him the creativity. And so he would say this life of rejection led to his success. You know, we can all be inspired by a rejection story that sort of ends a certain way, right? Like, rejection stories that just end with rejection just, you know, aren't fun at all. But, you know, rejection stories that end with success we can like. So, famously, Michael Jordan was cut from his own high school basketball team. Or we like stories of actors that were sort of rejected for a, a certain role. And, you know, it's not fun if it's just a story of an actor who tried out for 20 roles and just left acting, right? But they tried out for a certain role and then finally got the breakthrough they want, that can be inspiring. Or, you know, a guy that just gets dumped by a girl isn't a really fun story, but on the way out from being dumped, he meets the love of his life. You know, we like these kind of rejection stories that sort of turn out redemptively, that end happily, that they learn something along the way. Well, in our, in our passage this morning, we're going to be reading two stories of loud rejection. One where Jesus is rejected, one where John the Baptist is rejected. And the fact that they're rejected is obvious, it's clear, it, it's really, it, you, you can't miss the fact that they are rejected. It's really the main point of these stories is to see the way that they're rejected. But what's easy to miss, and so the question to have in the back of our mind is, what purpose did this rejection serve? It's, it's, it's easy to see, well, but these, these two were rejected, 
But what's the point? What's, what's the lesson for us? What, what was the, the good for them? Was there any reason behind the rejection, or was it just rejection? I submit that the reason and the purpose wasn't something that they needed, but ultimately their rejection was for our benefit. It wasn't sort of a, it wasn't a benefit to them, but their rejection served to benefit us. So that's what we'll be looking at. This morning we're going to read Matthew 13, beginning with verse 53 through the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, What did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did, these man, did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So in this passage, we, we see the point that Jesus is rejected by his own people. He is rejected by his own people. So in this passage, he goes to his hometown, and right after a time of just extraordinary teaching, right? So we see all the parables that he was just teaching, a profound teaching. He's teaching of the value of the kingdom, the nature of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. Sort of the, just what we just come off of, right, is teaching about this master gardener who, who would plant good seed and sort of, Sort of, sort of good seed that would grow, but if you sort of had a hardened heart towards what was being planted, you would reject the seed and you, you would wither and die. And sort of almost as, as a living, breathing example and sort of demonstration of what he's teaching, they with hardened hearts reject him. So sort of they're, they're just sort of this personification of what he's just been teaching out. This is Jesus Christ, God made flesh, teaching them sort of about the gospel, about the nature of the kingdom. And they're sort of like, now, nah, we're, we're good. They just sort of demonstrate all he was just teaching. Basically, this attitude of, who, who does he think he is? He, he thinks he knows more than us? Like, really? He's better than us? No, no way. He, we know his siblings. We know his parents. He, he's, he's nothing special. They take offense at him. To me, this is just a strange reaction to, to someone from a once hometown. Like, I'm, I'm a guy, if you know me. I love my hometown, so I'm... I'm the opposite, I think, of this crowd in that if, if, you're from, if you've heard of my hometown, like, I'm your biggest fan, right? Like, this is just, this is who I am. So my favorite Olympic moment was in 1996, and my favorite Olympian is a man named Kit Simons. And so most of you don't know the name Kit Simons, but Kit Simons finished fifth in men's overall gymnastics in the 1996 Olympics Games. And he's my favorite Olympic athlete. To me, the, you know, Bill DeBatis, so he's the greatest Olympian of all time. And it's not because I really have a passion for men's gymnastics. I, um, um, I mean, a little passion, but um, I've never successfully done a cartwheel. Um, yeah, um, I've done a forward log roll has been the, uh, the extent of it. But, but Kip Simons was from my hometown, and more excitingly, he casually knew my older brother. And so, like, this is like, like, when the judges came back and he finished fifth, I was like, he was robbed. Like, you could see all the technical stuff. Like, there's just this sense of, so I don't really get this. If somebody from my hometown, if you've heard of my hometown, like, I'm, I'm totally in your corner, but they have just the opposite reaction. They respond to Jesus Christ. It's just they take offense at him. And I'll just say nothing against Kip, but, 
So the comparison between Kit Simons and the Word made flesh, there's no comparison between the glory of Jesus Christ and anybody from my hometown. They, they take offense at him. Just a sense of who do you, who do you think you are? You're one of us. Where do you get off coming off? So because of their unbelief, he does not do more. He does very few miracles. He just sort of leaves the town. He leaves without doing more extraordinary work. And we need to note, he's, God's not bound to our belief. He's not bound to our faith. He's not limited by our ability to expect much from him. Right? He's not what is it, Santa's reindeer that are you know, fueled on by Christmas cheer. and stuff. He's not that. He's not a God that needs our cooperation. He doesn't need a little help from us. He is absolutely sovereign over all things. He, he didn't leave because he couldn't work because of their lack of faith. But the Holy Spirit rarely forces miracles on an unwelcoming public. And so he leaves and we'll find what they found, what we would find that would be true and likely in our own life. The more we push him away, the less we anticipate him to act, I think the less we'll be likely to see the less we'll be able to see his work among us. The more we like to put him in a box, the less likely we'll be able to see his work outside of our box. The less likely it is that we see his work among us. The more we put him in the box, the more we can say him not working outside of it. Not because he's not there, but just because we can't see him outside of the box we put him in. So he leaves, but ultimately this is a story of they abandon him. And so for them, at their core, they had hardened hearts. They saw the Messiah as one who would fit their preconceived notions. So they dismissed the miracles, they dismissed the teaching, and they derided him. They took offense at him. They really just mocked him. These are his brothers and sisters. We know his parents. Their brothers, nothing special, so neither are you. You didn't grow up. You weren't from the nice house up the street. You're, you aren't anything. Now, they just seem ridiculous in this passage, and they are, but... I mean, it's so easy for me to harden my own heart and it's so easy for me to miss the work of God because it's not the way I expected it to be because it, he comes and does... Because I often think, well, he should have done something different here or I'm really expecting him to do this so it's easy for me, it's easy for me to miss his work because I'm expecting something else. It's easy for me to harden my heart because it wasn't what I would have chosen for him to do. So in this passage, Jesus is rejected by his own people. And there's something that's going to be building, and it really begins here, but you're just going to see it more and more, and it's going to intensify more and more as the book of Matthew unfolds. It's this opposition and resistance to Jesus is just growing and growing. We're going to see that more in the very next passage. But the resistance of Jesus isn't just by his enemies. The resistance to Jesus isn't just by the spiritual elite and the Pharisees who don't like the new world order he is creating. Jesus is rejected by his own people. And for a Savior who obviously endured so much in his earthly life, I think there's just a particular pain that being rejected by his own people must have created. Now, there's something obvious that we can take away, right? Like, don't be like them. Don't be like those who rejected Jesus. Don't harden your heart to his work. Don't put him in sort of your, your box and sort of say, okay, if you work in this way, we're good, but anything else, we're, 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 you know, we don't like. So, there's something that we, we want to take away from their counterexample. But, but there's more than simply not following their example than we need to see. There's, there's more purpose behind their rejection than simply not doing what they did. And see that I want to look at the next passage, which is chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. So he's rejected by his own, and now there's a story of being rejected 
by his enemies, the one being rejected by his enemies. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herides, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herides danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Verse 9, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Okay, so just a kind of a recap and sort of a historical recap of what's going on, because it's it's sort of the story kind of changes tenses a little bit. So what, what's going on? So verses three through twelve are a flashback, sort of sort of in a movie when sort of something's brought to mind and you remember a scene that happened prior, right? That's what verses three through twelve ha- were. That this already happened. This happened in the past. So this is sort of there, something had been brought to mind, and they're remembering verses three through twelve of of, wh- of how and why John the Baptist died. And so, in verses 1 and 2, Herod the Tetrarch hears about Jesus, and he makes this connection to John the Baptist and thinks, oh, that, this, is, this isn't good, because um, John apparently is back from the dead, cause, so he, cause he knows John already died, because Herod knows this, because Herod is the one who had him killed, so verses 3 through 12 tells us how and why he had him killed. But in verse 1 and verse 2, Herod, this is going to be shocking, but, but really, Herod had a lot of flaws, and... One of the flaws is this terrible theology and superstition, whatever, whatever it is. So in verse 2, he's just showing his terrible theology. Oh, this guy who I'm hearing good things about, that must be this guy raised from the dead and just thought Jesus was John the Baptist and just come back to life. And he was, he was all messed up. But what he's done is he is, Jesus is far scarier than John the Baptist come back to life. But, so this Herod in verse 1 and 2, this Herod, the Tetrarch, is one of the sons of that Herod. The, the Herod who, when Jesus was born, had... All the murder, had all the children murdered so that he could stay on his throne. And that Herod, from the time of Jesus' birth, like everyone else who has tried to disown Christ, is now dead while Jesus is very much alive. And then in verse 1, this Herod is now his son. And he's one of several sons by this Herod, and they all just ruled over different regions. And so this Herod, the Tetrarch, ruled over this particular region. And Herod, this, this Herod wanted to marry a woman. The only problem is that she was married to his brother already. But he marries her anyway. And John calls him out on it. He notes it's not right. He basically just says, he, he goes and confronts them for being so sinful and just so wicked in, in his leadership. Now, now, we need to recognize, too, it's not, John's not sort of going out of his way to find sort of every problem and every marriage, you know, sort of every sort of offense that could be. This is a very public thing that happened. Right, John's, John's known for living in the wilderness. He's the locust and honey guy. Right, he, he's off the grid, and this is before there is a grid. Like he's, he's out there. And yet even John's aware of what's happening, and he's just aware of just how this is just disgraceful to the character of God and what it, rep- what, what it communicates of, of the character and nature of God. So he calls them out. 
And he calls him out publicly. And Herod and his new wife don't like it, so they have him arrested. And so Herod's stepdaughter, at the request of her mother, Herod's current wife, asks for John to be killed, and so he is killed. And so we see this as part of the rising opposition to Christ. They killed John for being faithful to holiness, for loyalty to Christ and his kingdom, and the ethics of the kingdom, and how that cost John his life. Those in the story, their, their conscience were so seared that rather than repent, rather than change, rather than admit fault, they literally killed the man who brought any truth. And if you know anything about John's message, John's message was not sort of be morally perfect. He was not teaching a message of, of moralistic, hey, if, if you do enough, you can get into the kingdom of God. No, his message was repent because the kingdom of God is not here. Repent because per- the perfect one is now here. So, so turn from your sins. It's not about being perfect. It's about turning to the one who is perfect. It's about turning because we aren't perfect. So his message wasn't, hey, be a perfect, live a perfect life and you're fine. It was, hey, you're going to mess up. So turn to him. That was his message, but they didn't want to hear it. So they literally had him killed. Their conscience knew it was wrong, but rather than turn, they arrest the man who agrees. They, they kill the man who really just boldly noted the obvious. So I think we see in them that there's an example of how sin grows, how in Herod's mind at one point would have started with lust and just playing with his mind, just sort of imaginings in his mind and how it's now led to broken families and now it leads to death. This is an example of how sin always spirals, how it always grows. Do you think there's something to take from this in our own life? I mean, we see Harrison, right? It's just so wicked. I mean, it's just that he has a man killed for calling him to repentance. He, he has a man killed for for, for, for noting the obvious that you can't do this. You're, you're ruining families. You're just throwing everything away. You're, you're violating God's law on so many levels. So he has this man killed. But what we see in our own life is, we see, we see right, Herod's sin is so obvious. But, but any of our big sins, any, any sin that we, that sort of the bigger sins in our life, none of them start out as major sins announcing themselves, hey, this is going to be a real big mess up we're about to do. All right, you're ready to throw your life away? No, what, what, what all of our big sins start out as is real small sins that we don't repent of and we, we keep hidden and we, we kind of groom a little bit and kind of justify for whatever reason. And those sins, maybe not as dramatically as hairs, but those sins always spiral out of control and they always lead to death. And so I think there's an example here, you know, again, a counterexample of do not be like them. Do not sear your conscience. Obviously, that's dangerous. Right? It's so easy to not kill sin, only to watch it go down a broken road and watch it lead to death. So certainly don't do that. See wickedness and, and turn around. But I don't, and so I think there's something about not, it's not, listen, it's easy to see Herod and just think, how evil is this guy? But this isn't primarily a call to sort of See the sin of others and note their wickedness and call that out. And it's easy to see the sin in politicians and Hollywood and the church and some group we don't like at the moment and whatever and, and call them out rather than repent of our own sins. But this isn't primarily a call to look at how evil God's enemies are. Do you think we'd be better served to, to find where our own conscience can be seared, where we can let small sins in and lead the spiral down a deadly road. But, but I don't think these passages are primarily about avoiding the negative examples of others. 
it, it, it's meant to call our attention to the rising rejection of Christ. The rising rejection of, of Christ and, and of his followers is meant to jump off the page. It, right? Matthew's not being subtle here. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess Jesus was rejected. Yeah, I guess John, okay, yes, they did reject him when they took his head off. Right, yeah, no. It's meant to jump off the page. There's rejection, just, it's just leaping off. And Jesus was rejected by his own, and now John, the forerunner of Christ, was rejected to the point of death by his enemies. And we're meant to ask, What's the purpose of this rejection? Why, why this rejection? I think in John the Baptist, not just to look back and say, well, this happened to John. We're meant to see the very clear foreshadowing. This is what will happen to Christ. In the book of Matthew, there's this pattern that John is the forerunner to Christ. The forerunner is the one who goes before, right? So he came before him in his birth and was announcing the birth and... He came before him and announced his ministry. He announced the type of ministry that he was going to have. And now John is coming before Christ in his own death. And so he's coming before Christ once again in his death. But not just in the fact that he died before Jesus. But he is a forerunner to Christ in the type of death he died. See, we're we're to see this, we're to look at this and see John's rejection as the same type of rejection Jesus is facing and is going to face to the point of death. We're going to see that Christ faced death for a wrong he didn't do. That Jesus Christ was arrested not for wrongness he brought, but for righteousness that he had. That there was one in authority who who regretted his decision to who regretted his decision to arrest him to try him, but feared the crowd more than he feared God, and so he gives in. And that the crowd wants the death of the righteous one, so that the guilty one could be set free in some way. See, John was a forerunner to Christ in the, in the type of death he died. The innocent dying as the guilty. The guilty with a blinded conscience. Who was uh, the, the guilty arrested and tried and condemned the only hope they had. John was the only one preaching repentance in this passage, which is the pathway to life. Jesus is the only one who was life himself, and those are the ones who they put to death. And just as in... The death of John, his voice was not silenced, but grew only louder. In the death of Christ, the mission was not stopped, but became unstoppable. In this section where oppression of Jesus is growing, it's a clear foreshadowing to the type of death that Jesus was going to die. This is what this is leading to. The book of Matthew is leading to this ultimate rejection. So Jesus would continue to be rejected. He would be continue to be rejected to the point of death. He continued to be rejected by his own people and rejected by his enemies. I want to ask a question that I did in the beginning, which is, what's the purpose of this rejection? What, what, what did his rejection do? I mean, here's an example. We don't want to make the same mistakes they did where others rejected him, where others were hardened and blind. We don't, we don't want to do that. We want to repent. We want to kill sin. I don't think the, the main purpose of these rejections and the main lessons of these rejections is, is, is these things. And unlike Jack Ma or whoever else sort of we want, who we sort of take inspiration from, the rejection did not make Christ stronger. He didn't need any strengthening. He didn't have anything lacking in himself that sort of rejection taught him. Jesus reject, was rejected by his own and was rejected by his enemies so that ultimately he could be rejected for his own and for his enemies. Jesus was rejected by man so that man could be accepted by God. Jesus was rejected 
to usher in this great reversal that we needed. See, it should have been man that was rejected by God. It should have been his own that God rejected for their sins and their failures and their lack of faith. It should have been God's enemies that were rejected after, for, for their wickedness and their unbelief and their sinful accusations. See, those are the ones who should have been rejected. The purpose of Jesus' rejection ultimately was for our acceptance. It wasn't, it wasn't for anything he needed, but it was, it was for the acceptance that we needed. He, he received on himself what we deserved and exchanged it for what he is due. We are accepted by God because Jesus Christ was rejected. He was rejected by God because our guilt was placed on him. He was rejected by his own and by his enemies and at the cross, even by even his father turned his face because guilt was placed on him. And because even the face of God turned away from him, we are accepted and his face shines upon all those who place their faith and trust in him. His rejection served our acceptance. Because the guilty placed the punishment on the innocent, we can be forgiven. In these stories, they didn't get away with anything. They just, they just, put, it, they just put it somewhere and hoped that God would sort of, oh, oh, yep, I hope my conscience will be cleaner now because I, I killed the guy who's accusing me. That, that doesn't work. But his rejection serves our acceptance because all of our guilt actually was placed upon him. So I think this passage is a passage to a recall to praise God that Jesus was willing to endure the rejection he did not deserve. He endured our shame and our guilt. Praise God that he did not come to, he did not come to reject those who deserved it. He did not come to receive the praise he was due. But he came to endure the rejection of the guilty, of his people and of his enemies. And, endure, and enduring the rejection of his enemies, he brought those far off close to God and secured adoption for all his people. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the world is telling you that maybe we need to clean up a little bit. Maybe there's something you need to do. But you deserve to be loved and accepted by God. You, you, you're good the way you are. Maybe, maybe clean up a little bit. You know, the big obvious things. You know, don't behead the prophets. Other than that, you're, you're kind of good. You, God loves you and accepts you just the way you are because of who you are. You're, you're, you're fine. Be simple is simply not true. We are by nature objects of wrath. We are deserving of his ultimate rejection. But Jesus Christ was rejected because our sins were placed on him so that we could be accepted. So you need to place your faith in him. Jesus Christ wasn't rejected because of something he had done. He wasn't rejected because he, he somehow fell short. He was rejected because he, he took our sins upon himself. And you can be forgiven if you trust, not that in your righteousness, not in that you're good enough, not in that, boy, I just need a little bit of help, but 
you, you, you are accepted by God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, by turning from your sin to saying, sin. Jesus Christ, you took the penalty for my sins so that I can have fellowship with God. The Father, would you forgive me? I place my sins and my confidence on you. And that's it. You have turned to Jesus Christ. And this is simply a reminder to live in light of this good news, that your sin... Whatever sin it is tomorrow, right? Whatever lust or pride or laziness or envy, and we could go on and on and on. Here's right. It does not push you away from God. It should have. It would have. But it doesn't because of Jesus Christ. Because all of our sins, all of our laziness and our lust and our pride, and on and on and on, has been placed on Him. So, we should repent. We should turn. We shouldn't just sort of let them spiral out of control. No, no, we want to turn. But listen, it's not anything that we do that is the reason we're not rejected. It's trusting that what he has already done for us, he's already done. It, it, he did it for us so we can turn to him again and again. Because he has been rejected, you are accepted by God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ tomorrow morning, you don't have to get up and have a really good day and then God will accept you, then God will love you. No. Jesus Christ was rejected. He took all that should have pushed you away. He took all of your weaknesses and your shortcomings and your failures and your shame and your sin and he took it all upon himself. And he brought you what he deserved. He, he brought you into fellowship with, 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 with God. Jesus Christ brought the great reversal and the great reversal he brought has nothing to do with sort of what you bring to the table. It has only to do with what he has brought. Because of his character, he will, he will never turn you away when you, he will never turn away anyone who is repenting, who, who repents of their sins and turns their, and places their trust in him for the first time or for the thousandth time. Because of who he is, he will never turn them away. He will, he will never refuse them. And so he, that should fill us with joy and faith and hope tomorrow morning when we get up. None of these things define us. None of these failures define us. None of these things that should naturally push us away from God will define us or push us away one inch. Because Jesus Christ was rejected by us, and he was rejected for us, for our acceptance, and for our fellowship with God. So let's be a church that walks in the good of that reality. I'm going to close in prayer. Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ, not to condemn the guilty, but to be rejected by the guilty for the sake of the guilty. Jesus, thank you for enduring our shame and our brokenness and our weakness and our, and our sin and our guilt upon yourself so that we could enjoy fellowship with God himself. Father, we, may we be those who, when, our own, when we sin and we fall short and our own flesh wants to cry out that, that this is separating us from you, would we be those who walk in the good you have already been rejected. You've already been, you've already paid the full price that is owed. And now we can walk in the good of fellowship and acceptance with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.